We ended last week's reading sitting on the edges of our seats. What would happen to Joseph after his brothers had sold him to some traders who were going to sell him on and make a profit? Let's hear the next episode in Genesis 39. Maybe it's a bit potentially X-rated. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house when she saw that he'd left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. The peace of God be with us all. I have a trivia question for you this morning. And uh, it's a trivia question that's, uh, that's too hard for Garrett because I don't even think he was born. But, Bobby, you and I probably, you, you probably know this one. What was the most successful, and that is the highest grossing film in the world from way back in 1987? Now, without Googling, I hope you take a guess or two from... Uh, wherever you are watching this today. 
the 1980s just might be looked back upon as some at some point in the future as this sort of golden age of blockbusters. Because if you look at the 1980s, you had a couple Star Wars films. E.T. was in the 1980s. The Arrival of Batman was in the 80s. That's the one with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, of course. Top Gun was in the 80s. Uh, Back to the Future was in the 80s. There was a trio of Indiana Jones movies all in the 1980s that I loved. I loved, in fact, I loved all these movies, and I get nostalgic just thinking about them. But 1987... Tucked away inside of all of these sci-fi dramas was another kind of fantasy, a truly terrifying one that kept uh, teens like me at the time more on the straight and narrow than a decade of listening to fire-breathing preachers. Alex, Alex Forrest, is a beautiful, successful publishing editor, editor just seething with charisma and magnetism. Dan Gallagher is a prominent Manhattan attorney living the good life with his wife and his daughter. That wife and daughter go away for the weekend, and Dan, who has never shown any indication that he would stray from his happy home, has this fling, this affair with Alex. Oh, it's steamy and it's rowdy in a 1980s kind of way, but it was just one time, just one weekend. Dan lets it go and returns to his home in the Westchester suburbs. Alex does not let it go. She begins to call Dan at work. He rebuffs her. She begins to call him at home. But back in the day, kids, you could unlist your telephone number. So he gets an unlisted telephone number. She starts showing up at his house. He moves. Alex finally prevails upon him to see her one last time. And when he goes to see her, she cuts her wrist in an attempted suicide right in front of him. And the entanglement continues. She boils the family's pet rabbit on their stove. Dan has to confess his sin to his wife. Further bedlam ensues. She kidnaps Dan's daughter. There's a bloody knife fight. There's an attempted drowning in a bathtub. There's gunshots. There's police. And should I live to be a hundred years old, I will never forget Glenn Close, Alex, delivering that blood-chilling line to Michael Douglas, Dan. Well, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. That movie is Fatal Attraction, of course, a film that still causes ripples today, 30 years on. For the record, Dan got everything that was coming to him. Uh, That was my conclusion, even then. A dramatic rendering of the Hebrew proverb, can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? He got burned. His life burned to the ground. He wasn't innocent. But there is another plot Another twist from the whole psychological thriller genre. What happens when your life burns down and you are innocent? What happens when you have maintained your integrity? You have minded every step of the way and still you find the family rabbit boiling on the stovetop. In a manner of speaking, of course. Well, let's ask our friend Joseph that question. This is the fourth installment in this series on that heroic character from the book of Genesis, but things are not yet so heroic for this young man. When we last left him, he had just finished, just been fished out of a pit. He had been sold for 20 pieces of silver by his own brothers to a caravan. He was thrown on the back of a camel, ridden across the desert to Egypt. 
He arrives in Egypt, that forbidden land, a teenager, and he is sold again at a slave market. Joseph has gone in the space of just a few verses, just a few days, from being the princely son of his enormous family to being an exile in a faraway land, a slave. And Joseph had to be thinking as he was being drugged through the sand of Egypt that this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. And he was right. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to him, but it was also the best worst thing that had ever happened to him. He could have been lying at the bottom of a cistern, dying of thirst or starvation. He could have been kept as a piece of property by the caravan owner to whom he was first sold and sentenced to wander the desert for the rest of his life. He could have been purchased on that slave market by an Egyptian stonecutter, and he would have spent his brief life in the blistering Egyptian heat cutting rocks until he was dead, probably by the time he was 30, used up and discarded. Instead, he becomes the property of a man named Potiphar, a high-ranking government official. Joseph doesn't know it yet, but he is on his way to the pinnacle of world power at the time, a place where his dreams would come true. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to him, but it was the best worst thing that had ever happened to him. Have you ever had a best worst thing? I have, and I imagine if you're watching or listening, you've had it too. God bless you. I see that hand here in the upper room. You lose a job, and it's the worst thing that could have happened. But then when you take a new job, it opens up this life of adventure that you never even knew was possible. You go through a divorce, and it's the worst thing that has ever happened to you. But then on the other side, you grow into a completely different person. Your life takes a different path. You find forever love. It was the worst thing that ever happened, and you wouldn't want to repeat it, but it was the best worst thing that ever happened. You don't get into that school you wanted to get into. You, you, for whatever reason, you're not able to pursue this career that you had been planning to take, and you go in a completely different direction, and your entire life is reordered because of that. It's the worst thing that ever happened. It becomes the best worst thing that could have happened to you. Someone sent me a story years ago about a jobless man who goes to this high-tech company, and they had put an ad out that they needed just an office boy, a person to clean up around the office. And this was an, uh, an, an up-and-coming startup company, and this young man goes and he interviews for the job, and uh, they just love him. Uh, he's fantastic. He can do the job, and the director of HR says... Okay, we, you know, we're a tech company, so we handle everything by email. Give me your email, and I'll send you all the, the information that you can fill out online. And the young man says, I don't have an email. I mean, I don't even have a, a smartphone. I don't even have a computer. And the director of HR says, well, if you don't have an email, then you can't work for us. We're a tech company, and he's rejected. He goes out, he's got 20 bucks in his pocket. What am I going to do? And he has this kind of immigrant spirit about him. And he goes to the grocery store and he buys 20 bucks worth of vegetables. And he goes out and he sells them. He's got 40 bucks. Next day he does it again. Next day he does it again. One day he can afford a cart. The next time he can afford a truck. And before long he wakes up one day and he's like one of the largest food distributors in the entire country. One day his insurance broker calls him to talk about his fleet of trucks that he has now. And the broker ends up saying, well, you know, after their conversation, I'll just send you this paperwork by email. 
And the guy says, I don't have an email. And the broker says, you don't have an email. You're a titan of business. You're one of the most successful men that I've ever met. Think what you could have been. Think what you could do if you had an email. The man thinks about it for a minute, and he says, well, I'd be an office boy if I'd had an email. That's how it works. Providence, uh, destiny, whatever word that we want to use for it, it works like that sometimes. Not every time, to be sure, but we don't know, do we? Life turns, life twists, it rises and it falls, and things happen to us that are a disaster or at least a setback or a disappointment. It might even be the worst thing that has ever happened to us, but it might end up being our path forward. It might end up being some sort of disguised blessing. It's what Lyle Sandquist, our own Lyle Sandquist at Simple Faith, calls one of those damn gifts. It's a gift. It's a damnable one. But just give it some time, and it might work out in a different way. That's Joseph's story. He could not know it at the time, but he is on his way to greatness. But first... He has this daunting obstacle in his way, this fatal attraction. Joseph encounters a woman who will not be ignored, his boss's wife. You heard the story. Joseph is succeeding. God is with Joseph. He is a slave, yes. He is a stranger in a strange land, yes. But he has earned the respect and the trust of Potiphar. Potiphar essentially hands all of the domestic operations of the household over to Joseph and trusts him. And as Joseph advances, so does Potiphar's wife. Relentlessly, she pursues Joseph. And why not? Her husband was wealthy. Her husband was powerful. She lived at the top end of Egyptian society. She was probably accustomed to getting anything and everything that she wanted. And if Potiphar was too busy or if Potiphar was too boring, why not entertain herself with this new addition to the wait staff? And that's what she does. She pursues Joseph and Joseph is always resisting her and rebuffing her. And then finally, one day she's able to catch him And she says, stay with me, sleep with me. And he runs away. He runs away, leaving his coat behind. Now, you know what people say these days, don't you? Well, why would an innocent person run? Anthony Ray Hinton says, sometimes an innocent man needs to run. It's true in Alabama. That's what he says. (laughs) And sometimes it's true in Egypt. He runs away even though he's innocent. And the text again, when she saw she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. And soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband. Oh, and this is a racial slur. My husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me. But I screamed. And when he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away. But he left his cloak behind. She tells the same story to Potiphar. You don't have to tell Joseph to keep his pants on. He's a good boy. But this is the second time that his coat has gotten him in trouble. That coat of many colors got him betrayed, and now this coat he leaves behind in the hands of this woman, and Potiphar comes home. He hears the story, and Potiphar is trapped. He has to do something. Even if he he believes his wife, Joseph has got to go. Even if he believes Joseph over his wife, which was a possibility, 
Joseph still has to go because Potiphar has to save face. And he's thrown in jail. And it's another one of those best worst things. Potiphar had every right, even because of the day in which they lived, Potiphar had every right to execute Joseph on the spot. Just kill him. But he doesn't do that. He throws him in jail. And not a federal penitentiary either. He throws him into the jail where Pharaoh, the king's prisoners, are held. Joseph actually gets thrown in a white-collar prison instead of maximum security. It's an awful thing. But as we will see as the story unfolds, it is another one of those best, worst things that could have happened. But it could not have been easy. For me, this is one of the hardest parts of the story to take. I mean, your brothers hate you and they sell you off. Okay, I get it. Families are complicated. (laughs) And all families are dysfunctional. Later, we'll see Joseph get forgotten in that prison, get forgotten in that prison. And he will be abandoned there because someone forgets about him. Someone fails to keep their word. Okay, I understand that. Nothing malicious about it. It's just a slipped memory. But here, someone makes a false sexual accusation against him. It doesn't cost Joseph his job. It doesn't cost Joseph a scholarship. It doesn't cost him the opportunity to run for elected office. It never does. It costs him years of his life. And he was innocent. And that is the part that is hard to take. And now would be a good time to remember the dreams that Joseph had. Back when the skies were blue, back when he was the favored son, Where have all these dreams gotten him? Into trouble? Into a pit of betrayal? Into Egypt? Into a slave market? And now into prison? He had acted justly. He had maintained his integrity. And still, he is the one at the short end of the stick. Everybody is going to suffer in this world. But to do the right thing, only to be punished for it, To act with truthfulness only to be penalized. This is one of the most bitter pills to swallow. And if that has ever happened to you, you know, you know it is hard to take. And to pour salt into the proverbial wound. While the just one pays the price for the sins of somebody else, those who are truly guilty get away with it. Honesty might be the best policy, but we've lived long enough to know that honesty is not the only policy. This world is overrun by those who have filled their coffers by deceptive and crooked means. It is filled with those who have scraped and scratched their way to the top of the hill without conscience, without regard for others, and certainly without any honesty. They don't care who they hurt to get there. There are those, not unlike Joseph's brothers, not unlike Potiphar's wife, who seem to sleep really well at night, every night, even though their actions have ruined someone else's life and they've hurt someone who is innocent. And it is these who never seem to get their comeuppance. That is hard to take even more so when you are the one paying for what they did wrong. Last week I asked the question in light of his own sons and what they had done to him by selling Joseph into slavery and falsely reporting his death. How many Jacobs 
Joseph's father. How many Jacobs are there in the world who grieve because of the decisions they have made? But I ask the same question today. How many Josephs are there out there? Those who through no action or decision of their own are paying the price for the sins of another. The child who is abused in horrific and grotesque ways in his or her home. What has that child done wrong besides being born in the wrong family? What about the woman who will never be paid equally with a man? The woman who will never get the same career opportunities. The woman who has to constantly be on guard for her own physical safety. All because she was born with ovaries and has estrogen only because she is a woman. The young black man, yes, the young black man still who is profiled, who is harassed. And in these most recent days, things haven't gotten better for that young black man. And he may have to pay the price because this country can't exercise its demons of racism. What about the immigrant family who likewise is harassed because they look different and their English is poor and they're here working trying to provide for their family, and they're targeted constantly. These are just, I could go on and on. These are examples that are right in front of our face all the time, folks, of the way that power abuses innocence. And the innocents are the ones who bear the burden of that sin. Never pick up your Bible And read it as the triumph of the dominant society. The scriptures are filled with examples of God taking sides, taking sides with the underdog. God taking sides with the down and out, the little guy, the poor, the widow the orphan, the stranger. It is God materializing in our midst as the prisoner, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the needy, the weak, the falsely accused, the wrongly condemned, the hated, the marginalized, and the forgotten. Yes, there are countless Josephs out there, victims of fatal attraction, those whose dreams have turned into nightmares, suffering the worst they could imagine. And I tell you that God is with them and that Christ is within every one of them, because when God manifested himself in flesh on this earth, he became all of those things. The naked, the thirsty, the weak, the falsely accused, the wrongly condemned, the hated, the marginalized, and the forgotten. I quoted Anthony Ray Hinton earlier about an innocent man running. Anthony was an innocent man. He was wrongly convicted of killing two restaurant workers in Birmingham and Bessemer, Alabama in 1985. He was 29 years old and sentenced to die in Alabama's electric chair. He would remain on death row for the next 30 years until Brian Stevenson, who is an American treasure people, and the Equal Justice Initiative took his case. 
Finally, forensics were introduced, and the state had to admit the awful truth that the wrong man was behind bars, and it had been so for three decades. And just as a side note, since 1973, almost 200 innocent people have been exonerated from death row alone in this country. Our country incarcerates more people than any other country in the world, and we have more jails than we have colleges and universities. That's a soapbox I'll save for another day. Anthony Ray Hinton watched five dozen people go to the electric chair over those 30 years. They all went to the electric chair chamber 30 paces from his 5 by 7 cell. And he lived in fear. And he lived in faith. These are his words from his book, The Sun Does Shine. I was there not by my choice. But I still had choices. Hope was a choice. Faith was a choice. And more than anything else, love was a choice. Compassion was a choice. See, we each have a choice to reach out and lessen the sufferings of another human being or not. Good people need to take a stand against injustice. And we have to find ways to help people recover after the worst things have happened to them. We have to make every ending a happy ending. (laughs) Anthony Ray Hitton took the worst thing that could happen to him, and today he is making the best of it, making sure that others do not end up where he is and where he was. And here is a part of that happy ending. It's about a three-minute video. This is Mr. Anthony Ray Hinton with Brian Stevenson, proof that even when it is the worst thing that can happen, it might be the best worst thing. Oh, it is a pain that you can't describe. You lay down with it, you wake up with it 365 days a year, uh, holidays. It was more excruciating for me because I was there for something I didn't do. As Mr. Stevenson got off into the case and you would file a motion and I would read the motion and I said, okay, this motion here is definitely, it's what we need and they're gonna look at it and read it and rule in my favor only to be disappointed again. Being turned down uh, over and over and over have no comparison to getting a phone call that your mother that you love and respected uh, have passed. And for me it was even harder because I shouldn't have never been there in the first place. been trying for so many years and I felt like we were always close and we just seemed to always come up just a little bit short at the Court of Criminal Appeals at the Alabama Supreme Court but when the United States Supreme Court ruled uh, that uh, the state courts had failed to recognize that his rights had been violated in February 2014 I felt like the momentum had shifted we were persuaded that uh, you know that the state should just acknowledge Mr. Hinton's innocence, and they just weren't doing it. I just wonder what was they looking for? What did we have to show in order for them to finally say, "Okay, now you've shown this, and we're gonna rule. This is what 
this man deserved. And it, it never did happen. Once they did testing, I knew that the tests were going to confirm uh, that uh, he was innocent. On Wednesday, we finally got uh, the, the notice that they were filing a motion to dismiss, which, of course, then meant that he was absolutely going to come home. My mom uh, stealing us just because someone do you wrong. It don't make it right that you go do them wrong. I can dwell on the negative and never grow. So I choose to embrace uh, the good and grow from it. It would make me feel better if uh, they apologize. But it's, uh, it won't stop me from uh, being happy. It won't stop me from growing. It won't stop me from uh, believing that uh, there are some good people in this world.